When uh, almost 20 years ago, my third son, Joshua, most of you know him. That's my fourth son. My third son's Elijah. Yeah, good call. I didn't have my notes open yet. It's in my notes, right? You know, it's what's in the notes is what I... <laughs> yeah, my fourth son uh, got streptococcal toxic shock which is basically just fairly normal strep that goes invasive into the bloodstream, and uh, at which point it becomes life-threatening. Strep, when it gets in the bloodstream, puts off a byproduct that creates basically gangrene in the limbs. It creates all kinds of problems internally. Super rare and very, very deadly. And because it was a Sunday, we had to take Joshua into the hospital. There were no... I think that was even before the day of the walk-in clinic. Like, there was no doctor's offices open. We went to Children's Mercy, and I was there for two weeks. We didn't come out for two weeks, and it was one of the most trying and difficult times of my life. Esther and I had to watch hospital attendants in hazmat suits taking blood from our son because they didn't know what he had, and they were uh, super scared about it until they got it figured out. Everybody that came in had to be in hazmat suits, except us. That was a little spooky. Um, And then, like, two days in, before they knew what it was, Matthew got a fever and similar symptoms, and they brought him in, and so now we have two kids. I assumed we had the plague. It was terrifying. I spent an entire night in ICU where they won't let the parents sleep in the room in case the kid were to crash and they need to do something quick. They can't be moving a parent out of the way, and so they won't let you sleep in that room. They have a parent sleeping room just outside of ICU, and I walked in that room, and it was the heaviest, saddest, darkest place I've ever been. I couldn't go in there. Everybody, Every parent sleeping in there knew their kid was hanging on by a thread, and the, the emotions were palpable and oppressive. And so I just stayed in the room and paced all night. They wouldn't need, if they caught you sleeping down, like sleeping like this, they would kick you out. So you just had to pace in the room all night long. I had a Wild West-type showdown with another doctor who wanted to do a procedure on Joshua that I wasn't comfortable with, and we squared off in the room, and, and you could hear like the whistling you know, wind and the tumbleweeds blow by as we sat there and stared each other down over whether or not he was going to do a lung tap on Joshua. Incidentally, his intern sneaked back in after the standoff, after I told him. It ended with me going, if I'm correct, I have to sign a parental consent for you to do that. Is that right? He said, yes. I said, I don't see me doing that. And we sat there in dead silence for about 30 seconds. He turned and walked out. His interns went with him. And maybe two minutes later, his interns came back in and went, that was awesome. (laughs) Turned and walked back out. They told me later nobody had ever stood him down like that. But anyway, I'll give you the full story later. It was fairly early in the internet game. and There was no like universal Wi-Fi everywhere. And so uh, Esther would have to go home and look up medical journals and print them for me and bring them to the hospital so I could highlight and take notes and learn what was going on with my son. Several of the doctors told me later that I knew more about streptococcal toxic shock than they did because it's so rare most doctors never get a chance to deal with it. And so... I, uh, over those two weeks, got very educated. For over two weeks, the only time I left the hospital was on Easter, or uh, Valentine's Day. I'm getting all mixed up tonight. When Esther had her parents come and sit with Joshua so I could take her out. She was doing the single mom thing at home. She was staying with me for a while, but Hannah, who was the baby at the time, uh, Esther's sister was staying with them and said that as soon as Esther walked out the door, Hannah got her blanket curled up on the entryway 
right by the door and just sucked her thumb waiting for mom to come home. Esther was like, I need to go home. So she went home while I stayed at the hospital. She did the kind of single mom thing where she was also running back and forth to the hospital feeling super stressed out because she had a really sick son in the hospital and being my research intern. And so she needed a night out. And so on Valentine's Day, she was like, you're taking me out. My parents were coming. And so we went out on Valentine's Day, which didn't turn out to be super restorative because I spent my whole time staring at the watch going, you think he's okay? You think he's okay? You think he's okay? By this point, he was like 99% out of the woods, but I was having trouble expecting that. And all these really bright memories are kind of seared in by all the emotions that were going on, obviously. When, when they were in the hazmat suits, they spent 45 minutes of Joshua screaming like that blood-curdling scream, not just crying, screaming as they poked him dozens of times to try and get blood while his veins were collapsing. They had poked the tops of his feet, the insides of his legs. They stabbed him everywhere, and he screamed through the whole thing before they finally got enough blood to run their tests. The incredible loneliness of that night in ICU when I was on my knees with my forehead on the floor praying for my son's life while he slept. The rush of fear and stubbornness as I stared down the doctor. But probably the most accessible memory emotionally of the whole event was when I walked out. When, when we were leaving the hospital with Joshua in tow, that incredible relief of knowing we're out, we're, we're going home. I assume people who get the all clear after battling cancer or people who, you know, are let out of prison or somebody in war finding out they're coming home or the Chiefs winning the first round of a playoff game. It's the only thing I can, like, compare that relief to. But um, I imagine it feels similar to David when he wrote tonight's psalm. Uh, And I don't even have to set it up because the scripture sets it up for us. It says, "For for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang this song. To the Lord on the day the Lord restored him or rescued him from all of his enemies and from Saul. He sang, I love you, Lord. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. The ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth quaked and trembled. The foundations of the mountains shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leapt from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. He opened the heavens and came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. Mounted on a mighty mighty angelic being, he flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dark rain clouds. Thick clouds shielded the brightness around him and rained down hail and burning coals. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded amidst the hail and the burning coals. He shot his arrows And scattered his enemies. Great bolts of lightning flashed and they were confused. Then at your command, O Lord, at the blast of your breath, the bottom of the sea could be seen. And the foundations of the earth were laid bare. He reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. 
He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. They attacked me at the moment when I was in distress, but the Lord supported me. He led me to a place of safety. This is Psalms 18, the first, about the first half of it. Notice the callback to the lament psalms, though. He says, The ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to the Lord for help. What I love about this psalm, especially as we study kind of the life of David chronologically and some of the changes that, that went on in David, is the fact that this is and where it falls, the true hope of any lament psalm. Like none of us lament just to process our emotions. We, we lament to be saved. We lament to be delivered, to be rescued, to be freed. And David actually received that. And this psalm is kind of evidence of it. We want God to answer. So let me say before we move on, uh, and this doesn't have anything to do with what we're really talking about tonight, um, but as you compare this psalm, David's kind of psalm of deliverance, the moment at which God rescues him from Saul and from all of his enemies, um, David goes back immediately to the stuff he said in his lament psalms. He goes back and immediately uh, brings that back up. So I think this is important. And if we haven't, if the regrets and pains of our past haven't become part of the worship of our present, then I don't believe we're delivered yet. I don't think we're completely set free yet until the pain of our past actually becomes part of the worship of our future. David doesn't go, oh boy, I said some pretty rough stuff back there. (laughs) Kind of lost my cool. God came through. I probably should have been more patient. My bad. Let's move on. He doesn't do that. He brings it right back up and he says, I cried out in my distress. I, I lost my mind. I was, I was on bottom and God came in and saved me. The, the pain of his past becomes part of the worship of his future. And a lot of us like to put the past in the past and just like leave it back there and never bring it up again. I don't think that's being set free. I think being set free is when, when your past starts to sound like I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. When, when you bring up the pain and the, and the, and the failure of the past and, and talking about it only makes the forgiveness and grace and mercy of Jesus sound bigger. When, when suddenly the things that he has done for you that were really hard when you went through them and you'd love to forget they ever happened, but when those start to make the cross even more beautiful and bigger because the, the farther gone you were, the, the farther he had to reach to save you, that's when I feel like we're actually delivered. Well, we see some of that here in Psalms 18 when David says, I, whoops, sorry. We're still on that one. David says, the ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me and I cried out to my God. The relief that David feels gives way to this kind of artistic explosion. And this is one of my favorite psalms because I love literature. I love poetry. I love symbolic language. Um, And so this psalm kind of opens the door to some of the literature I'm a little more uh, familiar with. Like this. Listen to this. I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears and the earth quaked and trembled. The foundations of the mountains shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leapt from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. He opened up the heavens and came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. Mounted on a mighty angelic being and on and on and on. 
I've read David's narrative maybe 20 or 30 times since we started this study from, from second, first Samuel into second Samuel, David's story. And I can honestly tell you after reading the narrative over and over and over again, none of this stuff actually happened. None of the, the heavens weren't torn open. Nothing quaked. Nothing shook. There were no, uh, coals of fire and burning smoke and God wasn't pouring fire from his mouth. In fact, the, the moment that David is talking about here, this moment when Saul dies, because remember the psalm starts out with, he sang this song to the, to the Lord on the day that the Lord delivered him from Saul and all of his enemies. So we know right when this happens. And that day is actually remarkably anticlimactic. David is actually outside the country at this time. His, his camp had been raided. Some, some enemies had stolen his family and his goods. And he's on a campaign to get him back. So he's completely outside the national narrative at this point. He's, he's not doing anything with the nation of Israel. He has personal stuff to deal with. So that's what David's doing. He's not even engaged in the national drama at this moment. The Philistines attack Israel. Israel goes to battle. Like I say, David is somewhere else dealing with personal issues. And Saul and his three sons die. It's quick. Nothing's really, nothing much is really said. Uh, it... Um, it takes four verses to tell the whole story. It's in and out after this big, crazy drama of Saul chasing David and all these interchanges they have and all these exchanges and all this poetry that came out of this moment and it's over in four verses. Just quick, easy. David has nothing to do with it. Um, it's just a regular conflict. But here's how David remembers the story. The earth quaked and trembled. The foundation of the mountains shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leapt from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. He opened the heavens and came down. Now, this introduces a topic that's fairly easy to get uncomfortable around. And that is the fact that truth in the Bible is considerably more variable than sometimes we in the West like to think it is. We in the West have equated the word truth for accurate. And a lot of times that worked. Two plus three is five is both true and accurate. It, it works. So we, we generally, when we think of something being true, we think of something being completely accurate. That's exactly the way it happened. The Hebrew word from truth is completely, considerably more nuanced. It comes from a root that means that which holds water is where they get their word truth. That which holds water. And they would use it for a pot when you would buy a pot it would look like a whole pot. Everything would look great. But you would true the pot by filling it with water. And if it doesn't leak, if there's not a micro crack in it somewhere that leaks, then you would declare the pot to be true. It's, it's true. Or if you were out in a market and you didn't have water accessible, you would put your eyes in the pot and look up at the sun and see if, the, if light came through the pot anywhere, through any micro cracks. And, and if it held water, the pot was declared to be true. And this kind of became their word for true. So it would be like if you threw a stick and the dog next to you immediately ran and grabbed the stick and brought it back. You'd say, man, that is a true dog right there. You obviously don't mean an accurate dog. You mean that dog does very doggy things. Like that, that pot does what a pot is designed to do. It, uh, it, that, that dog is a true dog if it does what dogs are made to do. Here's a good biblical example from Psalms 119. But you are near. O oh Lord, and all your commandments, all your commands are true. If we think about that, a command cannot be true. The door is shut can be true, but shut the door, how can that be accurate? 
How can shut the door be an accurate statement? Obviously, what's meant here is completely broader than just accurate. It means that true has a much deeper meaning than just accurate when we talk about it in the Bible. A command being true doesn't mean it's an accurate command. You can't have an accurate command. Sit down. That can't be accurate or inaccurate. It's, but if it's the right thing to do at the right time, if it's the healthiest, best thing to do, it's true. That's, so God's commands being true are more than just them being accurate. It means they're the healthiest, best possible way to live life. Now, obviously, David, when he tells this story, back in our psalm, <clears throat> we have to ask ourselves, is the description, David's description in Psalms 18, of his deliverance true? And this be, that becomes a, a broad question. I believe it's accurate. I mean, I don't believe it's accurate. I don't believe in the Western sense of true. Is that a true story? Smoke poured, fire came out, there was coal, earthquakes, etc. <clears throat> but even though I don't think it's necessarily an accurate telling, I think it is a true telling, which is what we're going to get into. Many of you have heard me talk about the difference between mental truth, like emotional truth and, and uh, mental truth and emotional truth. The best example is a fish story. You know, fish stories are full of these. We, we all assume fishermen are the biggest liars in the world, right? Because they tell fish stories. But if you go and catch a fish, and it's a good-sized fish. You know, it's a fish like this big. And it fought well, you know, and it, it took you a while to get it reeled in. And it was a fighter. It was a great fish. And, and you worked this thing, and you wore it out, and, and it, was, it was a nail-biter getting this fish in. And you feel this huge relief and this huge, like, that's amazing fish. That was, a, that was just right. And you go and tell that story. And you're like, man, I was out in the boat and I brought in a fish like this. And somebody's like, cool. You're like, hmm. Somehow I communicated the accuracy of the story, but it didn't communicate the emotional truth of the story. So the next time you tell it, the fish gets this big. And you're like, man, I caught this fish. Somebody's like, wow, that's a pretty big fish. You're like, gosh, that's still not what it felt like. And so then you tell the story the next time. I reeled in this, this monster fish. Somebody's like, whoa. And you're like, that's it. That's what it felt like. It felt like, whoa, yeah, that's, now you're catching the truth. Like, the, not, maybe not the accuracy, maybe the accuracy's in here, but the truth is, whoa, that's exactly what it felt like when I reeled that fish in. Well, so, so David, even though he may not be telling an accurate story, is completely telling a true story. When David gets to know about Saul's death, he mourns, he writes a beautiful poem about it about David or Saul and his best friend, Jonathan. Uh, and then he prays and asks God if he should go home. And God says, yes. He said, where should I go? He says, go to Hebron. So he moves into Hebron. So if David had written, uh, I heard this, the news of Saul. I was super relieved. I was excited to get to go home. And, and I did. I went home and moved back into Hebron. It would have been an accurate telling. But it wouldn't have captured what David felt in his heart and in his guts as he heard the, the news of Saul and heard that he got to move back into Israel. He got to come home. And, and not only would it have not told us, it certainly couldn't have communicated to someone else the power of what David is feeling in this moment. So David writes it considerably different. At the end of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31, we have the mental truth. We have what happened. Saul dies. David finds out from God. He writes a eulogy. He finds out from God he can move home. He comes home. That's the mental truth. That's the accurate story. In Psalms 18, we get the emotional truth of what happened to Saul and David's homecoming. And by the way, if you're the super pragmatic type, 
and art isn't a thing you're super into, you don't quite understand why art is super important, I think Psalms 18 is the best reason to embrace art. The, the fact that it can communicate so much more than pragmatic prose ever could. Art can communicate at a deeper level and a, at, a, at a bigger level than sometimes the accurate account can. Now, this is super touchy for us because we kind of get itchy when we start talking about maybe things that, that aren't true are true and things that are true aren't true. And, and we get real uncomfortable tonight. And the only reason I even dare to bring it up is because there's a level of truth in Psalms 18 um, that I think is uh, easier to see and easier to grasp than the accurate account from First and Second Samuel. So first, we're going to talk through the historical account. And if you have your Bible or want to open it and just follow the pericope headings, um, you can kind of see, keep me honest, that this is, this is kind of how it goes. I'm not going to read much because everybody knows I'm not the best reader in the world. But you'll, you'll be able to kind of, so we're at the end of Second Samuel, um, somewhere around 30, 29, 30. So Saul and his three sons die in battle. They die. David passionately mourns his death, writes a beautiful song about it. David moves back into Israel and settles in the tribe of Judah, which is way down south in the country. So of all the country of Israel, he's kind of on the, he's down in like South Texas. If it was America, he's down, or maybe even Miami. He's down in the tip of, of Israel. And then we read in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verse 4, that the men of Judah came to David and anointed him king over Judah. So one small little tribe in the whole nation, 11 twelfths of the nation, declares David to be king of Judah. So he's now ruler over one little piece of the nation. And it starts to feel like he's finally stepping into this anointing that he got as a kid. Like the things that were promised him by Samuel way back when he was a child seemed to be coming to pass. The men came to him and like, be our king. Judah did, and he's like, now king of Judah. Except, then we read this. This is right after, so if that was chapter 2, verse 4, this is not long after that. We read this line. But Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had already gone to Mahanam, Mahan, uh, Mahanaim, where Saul's son Isbosheth, with Saul's son Isbosheth, there he proclaimed Isbosheth king over Gilead, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, the land of the Asherites, and all the rest of Israel. Isbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king, and he ruled from Mahanaim for two years. Meanwhile, the people of Judah remained loyal to David. David made Hebron his capital, and he ruled as king of Judah for seven and a half years. So we find out later that he was king total for 40 years, 33 of them, 32 and a half of them. He was king over Israel, seven and a half of them. He was only king over Judah. So this huge buildup, he's anointed, you're going to be the king. This conflict with Saul. Saul dies and seven and a half years go by with David uh, king over just his little, basically his hometown. It's kind of like being a mayor. And it kind of makes you wonder, what in the world is David doing uh, for this seven and a half years? You know, what, what could he possibly be doing um, if he's not basically conquering the rest of Israel and stepping into this promise that God had given him? What could he possibly be doing? And if you read it, it's a little comical. Right after David settles in as king of his little tribe, there's some scuffles between David's general Joab and Isbosheth's general Abner. 
They have some scuffles. It doesn't seem like David was even involved. You never hear David talked about. <clears throat> and later, when David kind of finds out how things were happened, handled, he gets upset about it. So I don't think David is involved here at all, which brings the question, what could David possibly be up to? And the very next section in your Bible reads like this. These were the sons who were born to David while he was in Hebron. And then it gives a list of six different sons. So when we ask the question, what on earth was David doing while his army's out fighting? Maybe it's best not to speculate. As you follow David's story, David just basically patiently waits. He sits in Hebron, he makes babies, and he probably writes poetry and leaves destiny to God. And you know what happens? This crazy little tiff between Isbosheth and Abner, which has absolutely nothing to do with David, has absolutely nothing to do with the national drama, totally a personal fight between those two, completely collapses the house of Saul. It completely falls apart. Abner gets mad, decides he's going back to David. And eventually, uh, the people of Israel show up at David's doorstep, and it reads like this. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David and Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you would be the shepherd of my people, Israel. You will, you will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. So David finally steps into his reign. He becomes the king of Israel, not just God's anointed king, but also the democratically chosen leader of Israel. David steps into that position. And here's why we go through all that background. Because if we go back to Psalms 18, we go back to David's telling. Why does David tell such a fanciful, dramatic version of God delivering him from all of his enemies and from, from Saul? I mean, if you read the accurate attempt or account, it sounds like David just hung out and the right people died and the right people made the right decisions and things just kind of fell into place. You can come out of it with the conclusion that if you just sit around and wait, everything will work out. That's kind of what he does. He goes to Hebron, makes babies, and everything just works out. They come to him. So why does he tell such a fanciful story of how it went? I think the reason he tells it that way is because to him, it was that way. That's the way David saw it. The reason that the Psalms, and really all art, are so important is because in the midst of all the nice little coincidences, David sees more. David sees deeper than all the little coincidences that happen. David doesn't see a nation fighting over who's going to be their leader. He sees a sovereign God moving his people into the places he wants them when he wants them there. While Abner and Jonathan and Isbosheth and Joab and Saul and Judah and Israel are all trying to figure out what's going to happen next, there's a far more true drama happening that David sees. And that's the true drama of God shepherding his people. David reveals in Psalms 18 what takes a lot of work to actually pull out of the narrative. You've got to read the narrative a lot of times to kind of find it. And that's that David never feels like Saul is sitting on his throne. Never once does David feel like Saul is between him and the throne. 
in fact, when Saul dies and Ishbosheth, a weak leader, takes over, David doesn't do anything to, to try to get the throne. He doesn't feel like Ishbosheth is between him and the throne. David knows that only God can give the throne. And until God gives it to him, he doesn't want it. Until God moves him into that position, he doesn't even want to be on the throne. David does nothing. In fact, we, when you read in this section from the, from the moment that Saul dies on, you never read of David leading his troops into battle once. He doesn't lead his troops into battle again until Psalms, or, uh, 2 Samuel 5 when he's king of Israel. David just lays back and leaves it in God's hands and trusts that God's going to do it. Everybody else seems to know that David is going to be king. Everybody talks to, bumps into, even Saul one time says, and now I realize you surely are going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Saul even knew it. Everybody knew it. And David still does nothing. He still waits, waits for God. The throne is God's to give. And until God gives it, David doesn't want it. In fact, one of the things we talk about in this epic is the fact that David, I don't think, ever truly feels like the God of Israel. We read in the Psalms all the time. Psalms 24 is a great one. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. David, what made him a great king is that he always knew who the real king was. David always knew that God is actually the king of Israel and he's just stewarding the throne. So when David tells the story in Psalms 18, when he reaches the top, when he finally reaches the throne and you ask him, you know, tell me about your ascension, all David can say is, God did it. God swooped down. He, he parted the heavens. He came down. There was fire coming from his mouth and smoke. It was all God. I cried out. I was on bottom. I was wrapped up in, in chains. I did nothing. I was on death's door, he says at the beginning of Psalms 18. I was, I was, you know, I was on the edge of death and God came down, parted the heavens and saved me. How do we respond to this? Why do we talk about this? The first thing that I want to point out tonight is kind of the beautiful similarity between David's ascension to the throne and kind of Jesus's ascension to lordship in our lives. David was king the moment Samuel anointed him. God told Samuel, I have torn the kingdom from Saul and given it to my servant David. From that moment on, David was king. It was destined. It was going to happen. And yet David never pushes that reality once. He never forces himself. He never tries to subject Israel to this thing. He never complains that he's not the king. He, he, he sits back and lives waiting for the reality that God has said. Jesus is almost the same way. God opens the heavens as this is my son. Hear him. He's declared over and over to be Lord of Lord, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's absolutely, you know, the, the, the maker and sustainer of the universe. And yet never does he push his hand. Never does he subject us. Never does he say, you know, he doesn't sit in heaven angrily complaining that we won't just give him the throne. He knows better than his many times great-grandfather David, that the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus just waits. He comes as a, as a, a carpenter and itinerant preacher and just and invites. He invites. He shows us love that looks like surrender and he invites and he, and he opens his arms to us. He doesn't, 
He doesn't force. He doesn't control. He doesn't. So just like David, Jesus patiently waits for the throne. Which brings us to us. When we first started talking about lament, I, I talked about how lament is born out of helplessness. You know, as long as there's something we can do, we always will do. As long as there's something we can do to fix our situation, we'll fight, we'll scrap, and we'll work. We'll do whatever we can. It's only when we truly reach that point of helplessness that we lament, that we cry out to God. There's, I cannot do this, God. Save me. And then, and this is what I think is so important about David's laments, is, is I feel like if you don't feel helpless on bottom, you won't be grateful on top. If you don't feel helpless on bottom, you won't be grateful on top. What makes David, Psalms 18, when he gives all this credit to God, when he's like, God just did it, he just swooped in and did it, is the fact that he knew he was helpless on bottom. Once you cry out and you go, I'm lost, there's nothing I can do, I'm, I'm broken, blah, blah, blah. You keep, and then, then the salvation happens, you can't go, I knew it all along, it was going to be good. I was, I was solid. When you cry out and lament to God and God saves you, there's nothing else you can do other than be grateful. Because you know for a fact you were lost. You know for a fact you were on bottom. You were, you were dying. I'm dying. I can't go on. This is too much. You can't turn back on that. From then on when God saves you, all you can say is, yep, He saved me. We talked for, about lament for six weeks. When you've cried out for God to lament and He saves you, we respond with worship. We respond with worship. That's, that, that's the right response, is you give God praise. When He saves you, when you cry out lament and He saves you, you have to worship. We don't look back at the accurate account and go, yeah, no, was a lot of coincidences kind of brought that to, to play. There's a lot of turns in the story. No, we have to choose to see more. If we're nervous about a business deal... And, and we pray about it, and we go in the next day and it works out. We don't go, yeah, I might have gotten a little too worked up. No, we go, God split the heavens. He's fire from his mouth and flames from his eyeballs. And he came in and made that client sign that contract. Like, we see more. We see that God is saving us. When we cry out to God, we, we recognize afterwards that he helped us and we worship him for it. I have three times in my life not known how to do something and gone to sleep and in my sleep I dream about how to fix it and it's not like somebody's telling me how to do it I just know how to do it in my dream and when I wake up I retain that knowledge in 30 years of following Jesus it's only happened three times still feels like a lot to me it always makes me a little uncomfortable the last time we had blown a brake line uh, on our 15 passenger van one of the metal brake lines underneath that turn and twist and go everywhere through the van and I got up underneath there, I found the leak, and I looked at the line that it was turning and twisting and everywhere. And all I could imagine to fix it was you've got to replace that whole brake line. That was all I knew. And I was like, there's just no way. I called Charlie, and I was like, how much does it cost to replace the whole brake line? And he told me, and I threw up a little and hung up the phone. I was like, there's just, I can't, it's the only vehicle we have that can, carry, that can move all of us, and now there's no way I can afford to fix it. It's toast. And I was sick. And I went to bed. And in my sleep, in my dream, I'm on Amazon, of all the things to dream about. I'm on Amazon, and on my dream screen are these little brake line couplers that you can repair a brake line with. Yellow background on the little picture on the Amazon thing, brake couplers. I wake up. I had no idea these things existed. I wake up. Before I say a word, I roll over. 
grab my phone. You know, it's blinding me because I just woke up. I open Amazon. I search for brake line couplers. Yellow background. My little part that I saw in my dream is on the thing. I said a cuss word. I was, and I was like, what? And I was like, I just had another one of those weird dreams where God shows me something. And, and this makes me weirdly uncomfortable because with all the problems in the world and all the people that need desperate help, it, God worrying about my brake line feels like a weird misallocation of resources. Like of all the miracles he could do, my brake lines don't seem to warrant. And so it always makes me a little uncomfortable when God does this for me. And I was telling a pastor friend who I love dearly about that, that I don't know why, but it makes me a little uncomfortable whenever God does that kind of crazy stuff for me. And he said, well, you know, it could just be that your subconscious mind knew that those kinds of things had to exist and it just couldn't get it to your conscious mind. And so you had a dream so that your subconscious mind could bring that information up to consciousness. I was like, hmm. And I walked out and I was like nauseous, sick over that explanation because I was like, the only thing that makes me way more uncomfortable than God doing a silly little miracle just for me is the idea of relegating a real miracle of God to Freudian psychology. I won't do it. And so I got home and I told Esther, because I told her, I told her you know, about the thing and I told her, I was like, I don't care if it's just break lines. God swooped down from heaven and saved me. He parted the heavens and he was fire breathing from his nostrils and he saved me. And that was the story I, just, I, I decided I'm going to go with. I'm telling the Psalms 18 story because I don't want to tell the second Samuel story. I want to believe more. I want to believe that God was for me. I've been saying since we started this study that David's art tells us much more than the narrative ever could. Paul Harvey used to say, now you know the rest of the story. I think Psalms 18 is the rest of the story. Second Samuel, or First Samuel into Second Samuel tells us the story. It tells us what happened. But David in his art tells us the rest of the story. When Joshua went into the hospital and I became a self-proclaimed expert on streptococcal toxic shock, I learned that what makes it so deadly is how mild the symptoms are. Uh, when you first get it, it's a medium-grade fever and flu-like symptoms. By the time you are any sicker than that, it has taken a deep hold on you and, uh, and it has a, a really, really high, more, way more than half the people that get it die. And of the survivors, a very high percentage wind up losing a limb because it creates gangrene in the extremities, wind up losing a limb or an organ. And the morning Joshua got sick was a Sunday. I was children's pastor. It was a Sunday morning. We wake up. It's got like 100, 101 fever and it was a little bit lethargic and sick looking. It seemed like the flu or a cold or whatever. Kids catch so many funky things. So, and we're not the type of people that run to the doctor for much, especially not the hospital on a Sunday. So I needed to get to the church to get set up and, and there was no reason to not wait until the morning and take him to our general practitioner if he was still sick. We're not the type that run to the doctor. And so I got packed up, talked to Esther, gave Joshua a kiss, walked out the front door about halfway to the truck felt like I was going to throw up. 
I just felt, it felt like anxiety so strong that it was making me, no, making me nauseous. So I went back in, afraid Esther was going to think it was ridiculous to run all the way into the hospital for 101 fever. Uh, but I found out she was just as anxious. And so completely out of character for us, we loaded him up and headed for Children's Mercy, feeling stupid that we were going to be handed, you know, penicillin in the emergency room for, you know, first strep or something silly like that. We got in, they took his blood pressure, it had bottomed out, everything, everybody started running and panicking, immediately got him admitted, and our world started completely spinning. And two weeks later, we walked out, and at that point, I don't go back to check the stats, so I don't know, but at that point, he was the fastest recovery from STS on record, ever. Um, And it was all because we took him in so early, before the thing had a chance to start really tearing up. his organs and I can look at funny coincidences I can say boy we got lucky I can tell that story a million different ways but to me God saved us I was halfway to that truck and the earth quaked and trembled and the foundations of the mountains shook And God opened the heavens and came down. The flip side of lament is worship. The flip side of lament is worship. If if your lament never turns into worship, it's wallowing. That's what it is. When our lament grows and we cry out to God and he saves us, we worship. That's the response. That's how we respond to being saved. If you've ever been in a situation you didn't think you were going to make it and you didn't know what was going to happen and you're still here, then God saved you. The answer is worship. God opened the heavens and came down. The mountains shook. The world trembled so He could save you. This is the proper response. Psalms 13 that we've been studying for a couple weeks, that quintessential lament psalm, feeds Psalms 18. I think he's talking about Psalms 13 and then Psalms 18. When he says, the grave had grabbed me, I was tangled up. You know, Psalms 13 is, God, I'm on death's door here. Why don't you listen to me? You've turned your face from me. How long, oh God, are you going to be like this? And then he turns around Psalms 18 and says, man, I was on death's door. I, I thought God had turned away. I thought God was gone. I was lost. I was completely gone. And then the heavens shook and everything happened and he came down and saved me. What I love is the very last line in Psalms 13 says, I will sing to the Lord because he's good to me. I will sing. Future tense. I will sing. David actually says this all the time. Oh God, if you deliver me, I will sing praises. Oh God, if you deliver me, I will teach people about you. Oh God, if you deliver me, he, he does this all the time. And what I love about David is he makes good on it. He makes good on it. When he's on bottom and he cries out, he doesn't turn around and, and go, whoo, I kind of freaked out a bit. No, he turns around and goes, God is amazing. God saved me. God is great. Writes these big songs of worship because God answered his lament. Because when he cried out to God, God showed up. David was absolutely true to his word whenever he promised in a lament to worship God. My prayer is that we might do the same.